Welcome to the 3D Podcast. My name is Sean Coleman, and I am glad to welcome. I, I feel like this may be the first time, not the first time we've done a podcast together, but in terms of 3D, the first time we've had you on, Mr. Nathan Chester from SBN Grizzlies, one of the best SB Nation writers out there that I know of, and co-host of the Core 4 Podcast. How are you tonight, sir? John, I'm doing well, and don't sell yourself uh, short, sir. You are an excellent writer in your own right. Ah, well, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I, I do appreciate that. Um, Nathan um, and me have uh, grown together through our enjoyment of writing and things like that. I always love getting to talk with Nathan. Um, a regular co-host, Justin Lewis, will be back with us soon, but you know, always love to catch up with some of the other you know, great talent, great content contributors over at um, uh, the, the Grizzly Bear Blues blog. And of course, you can follow us at 3ND Pod. Uh, you can follow myself at StatsSAC on Twitter, and you can follow uh, the Grizzly Bear Blues and our podcast network at SBN Grizzlies. And we'll let Nathan obviously uh, um, get you, let you know where you can follow him towards the end of the show. But want to jump right into things. And, you know, if you follow me and Nathan, we had a conversation recently over on the core four podcast and wish we had a disagreement. You know, we talked about Grant Williams and, you know, where his placement was and, you know, the rookie uh, discussion and all that different stuff. And me and Nathan disagreed. Well, me and Nathan have moved on to bigger arenas when it comes to a disagreement. And that's where we're going to start tonight. Nathan, you recently commented about something that's very near and dear to my heart. And that is the star Wars franchise. And you said that revenge of the Sith, was a was a underrated movie, and I agree with that. But then you insulted Return of the Jedi, and mm. that does not sit well with me. I mean, it, 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 a lot of your opinions don't. That one just it, yeah, it, 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 it got to you. And I, and I clearly understand that. Um, let me let me tell it to you from my vantage point because there's a lot of different Star Wars fans from a lot of different generations, and I feel the need to define where I'm at. So I'm 22 years old. I grew up with the prequels, but the original trilogy was the first three Star Wars movies that I saw. So I didn't get tainted by the nostalgia of the prequels in my childhood before I saw the original trilogy. And I love the original Star Wars trilogy. I love A New Hope. Empire Strikes Back is probably the objectively best film and the, the most well-made and most well-put-together film in the entire Star Wars saga has to be Empire Strikes Back, and I enjoyed Return of the Jedi. Um, I loved the prequels, too, growing up. Um, I recognized even at that time they had flaws. Those flaws are even more present to myself now than they were back then. But here are some objective truths that I think a lot of hardcore Star Wars fans, both old and young, need to realize. A New Hope is a fantastic film. It's a great film. It's the film that started off the entire saga and basically invented the summer blockbuster. It has not aged well. It has not aged well. And you can go look at the difference in the special effects between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back, and there's a stark difference in three years there, um, especially if you hold to the opinion that uh, The Force Awakens is kind of a remixed, revamped New Hope. I find The Force Awakens to be a far more watchable and enjoyable film than The New Hope is today. That's probably a little bit of a hot takeish opinion, but this again, this is coming from somebody who grew up with A New Hope. Empire Strikes Back, phenomenal, fantastic. Now, Return of the Jedi. 
Okay, so we already talked about this on Twitter. And, and you know, I love the Luke Vader and the Emperor confrontation in the last 30 minutes to an hour of the movie. It's full of intrigue. It's dark. It's moving. It's powerful. It's everything you want from a Star Wars film and a movie in general. But the problems that really be the problems that really became precedent in the prequels, which was George Lucas focusing on merchandising, really the primary thing, in my opinion can be traced back to Return of the Jedi and the Ewoks. Ewoks, excuse me. I don't want to say it incorrectly and enrage anybody out there, but you love the Ewoks. And Sean, even at a younger age, I could not stand the Ewoks. They felt so out of place in what was supposed to be the culmination of a war film. And I realize Star Wars has always had a knack for goofy animals, goofy creatures, but... I like the gun guns more than the Ewoks, to be completely honest with you. I don't know, man. I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Folks, that'll wrap up this edition of the, uh, this week's edition of the 3D Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Nathan. Log on. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead and log on. See, this is why I, I, I enjoy conversations with Nathan, because whenever we have these conversations, he explains himself, and there's sense to it. I get it. The reason why I love Return of the Jedi so much is because the Ewoks are memorable. It's because it's so well put together, the family concept and just a lot of loose ends. Yeah, I agree with you. Force Awakens is more watchable. It also followed similar storylines, but it did, you know the, the, the general concept was the same in a lot of ways. The content obviously different. Um, but the reason why I love Return of the Jedi is is just because of the feel good nature of it. I mean, in the end, the, the right people win. You do have the 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 the, the turn to good of Darth Vader, all those different things, and, and, and I just I just really really do enjoy it. I have always thought that a good personality test, a good way to tell if a person is a is a is an optimist or, or, or a pessimist, do you prefer Return of the Jedi or Revenge of the Sith? And whatever your opinion is, that 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 kind of gives you a hint. But all in all, I just like to sit here and give Nathan Chester a hard time. I am a fan. I, I we both agree. I am a, do think that Empire Strikes Back is the most well put together movie of the Star Wars series. Return of the Jedi is my favorite, but I do think Revenge of the Sith Revenge of the Sith is vastly underrated as a movie. But I think something that we're missing as far as the optimist-pessimist spectrum, which I understand why you feel that way between Return of the Jedi and Revenge of the Sith. And first off, the scene in Return of the Jedi when Luke removes Vader's helmet, it's the most powerful scene in all of Star Wars. It's the most compelling, most emotional, most heartfelt, heartwarming scene. Um, That is Star Wars coalesced in a single scene right there. And if you don't love that scene, you don't love Star Wars, and you probably don't love movies in general. But Revenge of the Sith, it is a tragedy. Like, it's kind of tough to watch if you grew up with the original movies because you know where it's going for Anakin Skywalker. You know the type of darkness he's about to take upon himself. But for me, there are certain things that I like. I love the intrigue and the manipulation of Palpatine. Palpatine, um, Ian McDermott, and I am butchering his last name. I've never figured out how to pronounce his last name, but he gave 
the single best performance in the entire saga in that movie. And it's almost a hypnotic performance up until the final act when he basically go, goes all out insane and cackling. But how manipulative he is and how he's able to basically pull Anakin Skywalker like a string. It's some of the most compelling character moments in the entire movie. It's also got the best lightsaber battles, the uh, best all-around action. And although it's dark, it's sad, and even it's depressing in areas, you're getting to enjoy those parts of the movies. And while you understand that it may be going to a dark and depressing place, you also know where it's heading at the end of the saga. And you know there's an ultimate redemption and ultimately a redemptive aspect to every single part of the saga. So you can enjoy the dark and depressing parts knowing that it's going to end up in a better place. It's going to end up in the hopeful, optimistic, love conquers all type of place that you as a moviegoer want it to be. And that's the thing about it. I do agree with you. And that's why I think it's vastly underrated. See, I'm someone, I'll sit here and I will rate movies based off the villain. Like, I am intrigued by the villain. You want me to be interested in the movie, make it a strong villain. I, I you, you know from conversations that we have, I am a diehard superhero fan. I, I love the comic books, love the comic movies, things like that. My favorite comic book movie of all time is The Dark Knight because of the Joker's performance. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's because of um, uh, Thanos' performance in Infinity War, the one movie that centers on him. So, yes, that's why I think it's very intriguing and vastly underrated. It does a good job of telling the story. Anakin Skywalker was, or excuse me, Hayden Christensen was better going towards a depressed and sad Anakin Skywalker than he was trying to be a positive. So I, I agree. It, 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 there is a good representation. And, yes, um, Ian McDermott, I, I can't say his last name either, but he is one of those guys who was just born for a role, kind of like Hugh Jackman is Wolverine, um, Alan Rickman is Severus Snape, Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man, the list goes on. But he fits that role perfectly. And, of course, those were his best opportunities because that's when Palpatine was really able to show his personality. Instead of already being just completely evil, you could see the double agent in him. You could see him, the ability for him to be able to do it. I remember when I went to see when I, I was you had just been born, you were you know a toddler when these movies came out. I was, you know, in high school. But the thing that I'll say is, is that I remember watching The Phantom Menace and turning to my friends, that's Palpatine. Nobody believed me. It wound up being him. So, yes, I do agree with you completely. He makes the Revenge of the Sith movie, but Hayden Christensen also, I think, doesn't get enough credit for how he portrayed Anakin, especially, you know. With the turn to the dark side. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I think the – and we're not going to get too off topic here. we got Grizzlies and NBA things to talk about. But the last thing I'll say about Star Wars is that – and this is what will always give the original trilogy props to me over any other TV show or movie in the Star Wars universe. And that's the character development of Darth Vader. And maybe not even so much his development in-universe, so much is his development out of the universe. And A New Hope, Vader is kind of this cliché – um, I'm out to destroy the universe, rule the universe type of figure you would see in earlier blockbusters and earlier fiction. And then Empire Strikes Back turns him into this incredibly compelling and haunting figure. It, it makes him into an icon. It makes him into the most iconic villain in film history and also the layers of him being Luke's father. Um, how did he get to that point? How did he turn into a good man into 
this and to this monster who is out seeking to destroy this rebellion, wipe them all out, all while being the most intimidating figure in film history while he does it. And this is why I love Return of the Jedi, even though I think it has problems and it has some things I don't necessarily agree with, is that it takes all that that it's built Vader up to into this nightmarish, iconic figure. And he's just a broken, sad old man in Return of the Jedi. You can tell from the opening scene, even when he's threatening the guy, one of the leaders in the Empire, the same fire just isn't there anymore. And it becomes more and more apparent as the movie goes on. And it finally reaches a culmination into head when he finally confronts his son one last time. It's that that always moved me when I was younger to see like, wow, this guy really is human. And you've seen him be just an absolute total monster over two movies. And to see him basically get turned into this broken shell of his former self, it's almost a parallel to Anakin Skywalker in episode three. Just a broken, sad man just trying to desperately save his wife through any means necessary. To see him get to that point again and finally respond in the right and positive way he was always supposed to, that's what makes the saga so moving. I agree completely. And the other thing that I'll say is this, is, and, and there's a reason why, you know, uh, that I am absolutely love all the fantasy series, but James Earl Jones, it, 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 with, his, with his little flexibility in my opinion is he has with the the with the delivery of his lines it's almost as if he's reading from a shakespeare script at times but the fact that you could just see the development of vader's character without any type of facial expression or movements or anything like that it's it's very compelling and just to me just goes to show how awesome of an actor james earl jones was the casting and and Star Wars is amazing. But yeah, like you said, didn't mean for us to get into a 10 or 15 minute conversation about Star Wars, but hey, that's why we enjoy talking with each other. And one of the reasons why, you know, we love literature and film and things like that all together. But let's get on topic here and let's talk about the Grizzlies. Uh, Nathan, you know, this week, you know, me and Justin, we put together, you know, over the past three weeks, uh, the three or, or the uh, greatest Grizzly tournament. And that concluded this week with the, or last week with Zach Randolph becoming, you know, recognized as the greatest Grizzly. We had over 15,000 votes. Can't thank the fans and, and the followers of Grizzly Bear Blues enough for their participation. A lot of discussion and debate. But, you know, hey, I myself, me and Joe last week, we both you know, expressed our feelings that we felt Mark Gasol was the greatest Grizzly. He was there in the semis, but it wound up being Mike Conley and Zach Randolph. Your thoughts? I think that things pretty much, you know, chalked out, for lack of a better term. I think that they happened as expected. Uh, but, you know, I, Zach, I think definitely you know, deserves the title. And if you'll remember, I was kind of conspicuously quiet over the voting and all the opinions that were going around. And that's because when it comes to the core four, I don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other. Um, whether it's Conley, Gasol, or Zach, I could make a case for each of them as the greatest Grizzly of all time. Um, but in my opinion, if I absolutely had to pick one, it would be Zach Randolph. First off, Zach Randolph's peak is higher than any other Grizzly in NBA history. You could argue that Pau Gasol, when he was here, was the better all-round player, and I could definitely – I could probably get behind that argument, but no one was able to dominate the way that Zach did in 2011. 
basically carried a franchise to its first playoff series victory. And it didn't matter what the first top seeded San Antonio Spurs did. They threw double teams at him. They threw Tim Duncan, DeWan Blair, even Matt Bonner. God bless him. <laughs> Greg Popovich threw it at him. And it just didn't matter because Zach Randolph is that good. And for so many years, incompetence was the name of the game for the Memphis Grizzlies in the playoffs. And my co-host of the Core Four, Parker Fleming, and I were talking about this a couple of days ago. Um, I don't think it's necessarily fair to post those mid-2000s teams as just terrible or if they just didn't have what it took to win. Because let's be honest, they ran into roadblocks year after year. They played the San Antonio Spurs right at the peak of their dynasty. Um, based off some uh, divisional quirk, when they were the five seed and they played the four seed at Dallas Mavericks in that third year of the playoff run, the Mavericks had won 65 games that year. So they were playing the Dirk Nowitzki, Dallas Mavericks at their peak, and I believe that was the same Mavericks team that went on to lose in the NBA Finals to the Miami Heat. Um, that team ran into some roadblocks. I don't think it's fair to say that if they didn't have favorable matchups, they couldn't have advanced. But the point remains all the same is that no one ever really gave the Memphis Grizzlies a chance, both locally or nationally when it came to playoff series before Zach Randolph had his coming out party. And I vividly remember listening to sports radio on the way to school with my dad. It was like back in April of 2011. I think Jeff Calkins was the one who said, if the Grizzlies win one game in this series, we can count this season as a victory. Just win one playoff game. We got a whole lot more than that. You got four wins against the Spurs, and you got three in the next round against the Oklahoma City Thunder, and none of that even comes close to being a reality without Zach Randolph. And Zach Randolph continued to be a pivotal figure for the Grizzlies for about seven years after that. He was never quite the same dominant player at his peak after the knee injury that he had early in the 2012 season but he was still a very pivotal player for years, even after Mark Gasol became the team's best player. But Zach was Memphis. He was Memphis in his mentality. He was Memphis in his personality. And he was Memphis in the way he treated other people, the way he took care of Memphians, all the charitable and philanthropic work that he did to endear himself in the hearts of Memphians. So when you consider his talent and ability and his accomplishments and what he's done for the city, it's very hard to not give it to anybody else and uh, very hard to give it to anybody other than him. And Marcus all, he's a Memphis kid, basically went to high school at Lausanne, had an incredible run with the Memphis Grizzlies. I think the biggest roadblock to him getting this is that I think some people started to sour on him in the last two years. His attitude just didn't quite seem to be in the right place as it always was still one of the greatest Grizzlies of all time. Mike Conley, set the standard for what excellence is supposed to look like as a Memphis Grizzly. But if I had to choose one, it's got to be Zach Randolph. I'll say this about Zach Randolph. I, I've never seen um, – I don't know of anybody else who will be able to create the scene that Zach Randolph could. Um, I, I have been lucky to have been there the game where we beat the Spurs. I was there the game that we beat um, – the, uh, the Clippers. But the thing that I remember most is I've always stated, Nathan, that if you were to give me the chance to sit on the floor or up in the crowd in a game, especially a playoff game, I would choose up top. Uh, my back was against the wall when we played the Spurs and we clinched that game six. 
And the reason why I remember it so vividly is because whenever Zach, in his closing role as a closer, basically, whenever the Grizzlies were in a close game, but they were trying to hold on to a lead and seal a victory, especially in a stretch runner in the playoffs, they would run the isolation Zebo, get him to the side, get him on a big to where he can find his um, uh, moves to get open for that jumper, that silky smooth jumper. But seeing the crowd react to that, not only the, when he made it, but the lead up to it, just knowing he was going to make it, it was unbelievable. And that, to me, is nobody can recreate that. Hopefully, John, Jaron, make this a conversation, make this a debate that continues on for years to come. I just don't know if they're going to have the same connection that Zach does because of how he did things and because of how it embodied Memphis. I, I really do. There was a reason he was the number one guy, and, and I think that it sh shined through. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Um, I, I think that you can make a case for several different folks for several different reasons. But at the end of the day, I think Zach has the strongest case. Um, speaking of, you know, the eighth seed and then the Grizzlies history um, in that performance, you know, here we are. Another season in which the Grizzlies have it, the eighth seed. Obviously, with all that's going on, we don't know how that story is going to ride itself. But this week, we did have some intrigue as conversations came into play about what would happen with the NBA season. Obviously, before the season got uh, suspended, there was a lot being made about could the Grizzlies hold on to their three-and-a-half game lead with the Spurs and the Pelicans and the Trailblazers, you know, coming strong. Damian Lillard. Top five non-Grizzly player that I love in the league, maybe second uh, to, to Demontis Sabonis, came out this week and said, you know, well, hey, I think that we should have a playoff for the eighth seed. Add some intrigue. Give us a shot because we had a shot, you know, had the season continued. Obviously, though, there's a lot of flaws in that statement. Nathan, your initial thoughts to what Damian, you know, to what Lillard said, you know, about there being a, a playoff spot for the eighth seed. I like Damian Lillard, but let's just be real. This is like example number 100 of his NBA career about him whining about something that is not advantageous to him and outside of his control. Um, it's ridiculous. It's an inherently ridiculous concept. Um, I could – the only shred of an argument as far as fairness that you can make, because there, there really isn't much – You've played 60-plus games. You've had all that time to try to get into the eight seed, and you're three and a half games back. In all likelihood, you're not going to make it, and the Memphis Grizzlies would have been the eight seed anyway. The Grizzlies, if the regular season were to end today and the Grizzlies and the NBA was going to start the playoffs tomorrow, the Grizzlies have more than earned their spot. If you're going to make even the slightest shred of an argument in favor of Lillard, it would be to say that the Blazers and Pelicans had a much harder schedule than the Grizzlies through as much as you can through 60 games anyway. The Grizzlies had one of the hardest remaining schedules in the league, and the Blazers and Pelicans had one of the easiest schedules in the league. I don't think that would have mattered that much in the grand scheme of things. Like I said, 60-plus games is a ton of games and a lot of time. Maybe they're able to gain more ground just because of that, but that's not enough. It's nowhere near enough. Um, it's ridiculous, and I think the reason that it struck a chord with so many Memphians and why it seems even more ridiculous is because everyone knows deep down if the Pelicans were three and a half games up or the Blazers were three and a half games up, there would be zero talk about a tournament for the AC. And I think that's what really pisses people off and really grinds their gears when it comes to fans of the Memphis Grizzlies. It's just um, it's an inherently ridiculous concept, 
but there's also the added layer of disrespect that feels pervasive in it. And it's the old ideology, Memphis versus everybody, Memphis versus everybody, excuse me. And that's on display here. So it's not just the fact that it's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. And it minimizes the hard work the Grizzlies have put into this point to get themselves into this position. It's also just blatant disrespect. And that's what everyone knows it to be. And I agree. I, I think it's a flawed concept. It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, I can understand that the Grizzlies may have had an easier schedule up to this point than the Pelicans and the Trailblazers. But the Grizzlies have dealt with their own injuries. And the other big thing to also remember is this, is that when you look at the Pelicans and when you look at the Trailblazers, both of them were expected to be in this position. They were expected to be fighting for playoff spots. The Grizzlies weren't supposed to be anywhere close to this. We were potentially in a top five in the draft discussion. So the fact that the Grizzlies over um, succeeded, they, 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 they overachieved this year, I think that kind of, you know, silenced that, you know, argument to where they had the took they had the easier schedule. They took care of business when they needed to, and you can't take that away from them. Now, in a general sense of things, I don't actually think that it's a bad idea to add the extra intrigue of, of, of a play-in game. It'll never happen. I would never support it. I think it would be completely unfair to the eighth seed. But that's the thing that you see in the NBA. You see a lot of times these, these stars, kind of like when Kyrie was talking about the earth being flat, they are going to make statements just to for buzz. That's that's what it is. These guys are are, are buzz creators. That's that's kind of how they set their um, uh, personas. They, they they set their brands and things like that. Sometimes these guys will say things that they know may not be the smartest thing ever, but it's going to cause discussion, and that's what it is. But I was thankful and I was happy to see that there were so many opinions outside of just Memphis itself that supported the Grizzlies. You know, the Grizzlies don't need the, you know, uh, approval of, of the nation on how they do things, but they certainly don't, aren't going to be disrespected either. This Grizzlies team has reinvented their brand. They reinvented their style. They have exceeded ceilings and expectations more than anybody could have thought. And for that to just be overlooked because you have bigger stars and play on other teams, there's no place for it. So, yeah, while the idea is intriguing, there's no place for it. As far as as something being exciting, an idea that I could have is if you really want some extra in-season intrigue before the playoffs, take the worst eight teams in the league and have them have a tournament, and the winner gets the top pick in the draft. You don't want to – you don't want to make it the 15 teams out of the playoffs because obviously you don't want the worst team in the league to end up with the 15th pick and end up stuck being terrible forever. But also at the same token, you want to incentivize trying to be as good as you could possibly be. So take the eight worst teams and have them play a tournament right before the playoffs. If you're looking to scratch that itch of a single elimination, you it's the thrill of March Madness. It's why people like it. So add a little bit of that for the NBA. But you're right. It just does not practically work in this circumstance, especially when it involves minimizing all the work that the Grizzlies had to do to get to this point. You just simply cannot do that here in this circumstance. And it's asinine to suggest otherwise. But I will say this. There has been a play-in game of sorts here in recent NBA history, and it came two years ago. I want to say 
I want to say the Denver Nuggets and the Minnesota Timberwolves were both 46 and 35, and they were playing each other on the final game of the season in Minnesota, and it essentially amounted to a winner takes all and go to the playoff, the loser goes home type game, and it went to overtime, and the Jimmy Butler and Carl Anthony Town led Timberwolves were able to pull it out. So that's one example of recent NBA history of fanatics like you who want to get that little bit of that March Madness scratch, to scratch that itch here in the NBA. And that's the thing about it. We had our own, you know, not necessarily to that level, but had similar, you know, the last game before the playoffs, you know, that was a huge game um, where we're, you know, we were able to see the, the Trailblazers and the, and the Grizzlies do it. And the Grizzlies wrote to the occasion. I believe the Grizzlies were either 500 or just maybe a game or two above 500. They were right around 500 in their games against the Spurs and the, and the Pelicans and the Trailblazers. Um, uh, amongst other things. What really kept this in place was the Grizzlies' struggles against the Kings. The Grizzlies beat the Kings a few games that they were supposed to. They have been a five-and-a-half game lead. This, you know, becomes silent no matter what. But, you know, all in all, at the end of the day, even though it may be an exciting idea on, in, you know, a s- stretched perspective, uh, in this situation it's just too flawed. And and the worst part of it all is, and the worst part about the timing of this suggestion, is that these teams had their chance after the All-Star break when Jaron and Clark went down within two games of each other and the Grizzlies went on a five- to six-game losing streak. These teams had their chance to not only make up ground, but to take the eighth seed in its entirety, and they all simultaneously blew it. They all did. None of them took advantage. Not even the Kings. Well, the Kings were able to make up ground, but they still couldn't make it into the eighth spot. Everyone blew the opportunity that was sitting right in front of their face, and they don't deserve to be rewarded for it now. I agree completely. There were plenty of chances. If you can make a good point as to why it can happen, I can make enough of a strong point to make it not happen, you know, as a Grizzlies fan. So so I agree with you, you know, 100%. Other big news, uh, not involving Grizzlies, but in terms of the NBA, uh, the Hall of Fame uh, announcement was made for the 2020 Hall of Fame, yeah, uh, in the NBA, and it is one heck of a lineup, maybe arguably one of the most star-studded lineups in NBA history. Of course, the announcement that Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, and Kevin Garnett all make the Hall of Fame, of course, uh, part of what has made 2020 just, you know, arguably one of the worst years ever in terms of, uh, you know, our, our lifetime uh, was the untimely and just, just completely un- unfathomable and unfortunate uh, death, um, early passing of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, you know, and the seven others that tragically passed away in that helicopter accident. Uh, but he will be going into the into the Hall of Fame. However, there are two other names there, and they are two of the most iconic names uh, of my lifetime Nathan, I know that you got to see on the tail end of it, basically, but you got to enjoy a lot of it, and that is Kevin Garnett and Tim Duncan. Now, I wanted to pose an interesting question to you because I think that it's closer of a debate than people might you know, initially think. If you were starting a franchise from scratch, from day one, and you basically had your fantasy draft pick, and those two guys were your choices— who would you take and why? And I'm going to give you the floor first and, and let you explain. If you were starting a franchise and you had the choice between Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett, who would you take and why? 
You know, my early memories of Kevin Garnett were from that, like, 2003 to 2006 period, and I remember him dominating Pau Gasol in just about every single matchup he had with the Grizzlies, which is why I found it so irritating when Pau Gasol thoroughly demolished him in the 2010 NBA Finals. thought to myself, man, where was this for three, four years when not only – you were supposedly the better player, but you also had the better team most of the time. It was always inexplicable to me why Pau Gasol could never win that matchup and then five, six years later ends up dominating it. But Pat's bitterness aside, to me, it's simple. You don't overthink it. Tim Duncan's the greatest power forward of all time. Five-time champion. The most – it is absolutely ridiculous that he never won a defensive player of the year. It's absolutely insane. One of the best defensive players of all time was averaging 25 and 12 throughout most of his prime, um, was the best player on, I'll say, four of his five championship teams. I'll probably say Kawhi Leonard was the best all-round player on that 2014 championship team, and he was the finals MVP. But uh, Tim Duncan set the foundation for what excellence is supposed to be in professional basketball. He was excellent in every single area of the game. He was excellent as a teammate. He was excellent as a leader. And most importantly, he was an all-time great as a basketball player. No weaknesses in his game. And he set the foundation for the dynasty, the most premier dynasty in all the NBA for basically 20 years, close to it. And that is the legacy that he leaves behind. Kevin Garnett is an all-time great in his own right, a defensive player of the year, talented in his own right, made over, I think he made 12 or 13 all-star teams. He won a championship with the Boston Celtics. Um, those Timberwolves teams he, were, he was on were not great, but the fact that he only made the playoffs two times in his first 10 years in the league definitely works against him. I also think – he could have won more than one championship with that team that he had in Boston. Um, They had more opportunities. They couldn't seal the deal in 2010 because he got outplayed by Pau Gasol during that series. Kevin Garnett is an all-time great. He was a fantastic personality. The stories about him are legendary. They're fun to listen to. He has far more personality and flair than Tim Duncan ever had for sure. But it's simple. If I'm wanting to start a franchise between these two players – I want the guy who's the best leader. I want the guy who's the best teammate. And I want the guy who's the best overall player. The guy who set a legacy and a foundation of excellence for over for nearly two decades in the NBA. It's got to be Tim Duncan. The the smart logical part of me, for like if I'm in terms of being on the court, agrees with you. You know, there's a reason why there's an easy parallel between Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich and Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. You know, the premier coach and, 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 and star player combinations, you know, in all of sports in our lifetimes. But it's Popovich and Belichick are just legendary. They are the best coaches of their generations. But part of the reason why they were so good is because they had such an all-time talent at such an important position that was able to sit there and be the basis for everything that they did almost. Um, Tim Duncan is the better basketball player. Uh, statistics show it. If Duncan is 100%, Kevin Garnett is around 90% of what Tim Duncan was. But Tim Duncan was as consistent as they come. Even when he wasn't the best player, he was still the sole reason why the Spurs had such a high floor 
where if they were playing at the top of their game, they were so hard to beat. Um, but, you know, the thing about it is this, is that there's nothing wrong with the way Tim Duncan played. Yeah, people wanted for him to show more emotions, have more flamboyance, whatever it may be. He went with what made sense, and he didn't care, and it made him the best power forward of all time. But in this scenario, I actually think that I would take Kevin Garnett. And the reason why I think that I would take Kevin Garnett is because I feel as if there is added value in the personality, in the intrigue, in the the content create, in the content creation uh, that Kevin Garnett had. Yes, he was a trash talker. Yes, he was unnecessary at times, but it was always intriguing and it was always fun. He made the Minnesota Timberwolves relevant when, when for a, a long time they weren't. And, and you know, even though they have Carl Anthony Towns now, they're definitely not to the level that they were with Kevin Garnett. Kevin Garnett was kind of like Dirk Nowitzki in, in a sense, kind of like Damian Lillard in a sense. You know, in a smaller market in the NBA, he was enough of a talent to make this team intriguing. I can't remember the year off the top of my head, but there was one year towards the mid-2000s where the Timberwolves, I thought, were finally going to emerge and win a title. It was kind of like Giannis and Antetokounmpo in Milwaukee. Uh, that's a good comparison 15 years ago with Kevin Garnett in Minnesota. My point that I'm getting at is, is that Kevin Garnett, even though they only made the playoffs twice in his first 10 years, he showed enough of an ability to where he could be a true franchise player that could lead a team to a championship if he had the talent around him. And to add the entertainment value there, I would probably choose Tim Duncan in the end. But I, I do feel like that if I was starting a franchise, I would be just fine going with Kevin Garnett because the talent obviously is there and the extra things that, you know, make a franchise intriguing, even though they're going to struggle out of the gate, I think that's added value with Garnett. I think the, um, I think the simple question to ask yourself is if you replace Tim Duncan with Kevin Garnett, did the Spurs win those five championships? And the obvious answer to me is no. Well, that's that's perfectly fine, but you replace five championships with ten new storylines of um, Kevin Garnett and Popovich arguing through the media. What is more important to you, Nathan, storylines or titles? What's more important? As a, as a fan of another team, um, I would say the storylines, but if, since it's my franchise – and I have to start it with who I think is the best player. And I, in this position, I have to consider championships more valuable than pettiness and storylines. Then I got to pick Tim Duncan. <laughs> All that I have to say is this, is that what needs to happen is when they make Uncut Gems 2, the sequel to Uncut Gems, they basically <laughs> just, is I, as wonderful of a role as Adam Sandler did, I would venture to bet that if you replace Adam Sandler with Greg Popovich in Adam Sandler's role, that movie will earn more than Uncut Gems, the original, did itself. That's the content I'm here to see. How about you? I, won't get that, but I think the better, the better question to ask yourself than uh, Kevin Garnett and Tim Duncan is Tim Duncan and Kobe, which is also a fitting question since um, Kobe will be getting inducted into the Hall of Fame along with them. Um, and I still give the edge to Tim in that debate. I love Kobe. I grew up watching Kobe. I idolized Kobe when I was younger. But um, when you consider how the latter stages of both of their careers went, you still got to give the nod to Tim Duncan. It gives him the edge, in my opinion. Fair enough. I still think, though, if you were giving me the choice of any of the three, I'll take Kobe Bryant all day long. And the reason why that is is because of the fact that I feel – 
that he he's a better he's a better brand. He's a better product. And he still is there to be able to, you know, he's good enough to where he can be the major player on a championship team. Um, but I, I think that I would take Kobe over Tim. I think, I think you Tim, could say that Kobe was better, but Tim Duncan was more accomplished. Uh, correct. I think Tim Duncan, he probably in terms of production, was the more productive basketball player. But there's just Kobe's ability to do what he did with his teams. I know that the supporting talent needed to be there for him to win championships, but just that killer instinct of Kobe, the mama mentality, everything that you have seen promoted in a positive light since his passing, it was all true. And so at the end of the day, I really do think, you know, that, you know, it is, uh, it would be Kobe. And, you know, that, that gives me another point about this, you know, Nathan, before we get into our last subject, you know, everybody's been talking about since Kobe's passing, you know, oh, there really doesn't need to be any more conversation about, you know, these comparisons, you know, you don't need to compare Kobe, Michael and LeBron. You don't need to compare, you know, KG, Duncan and Kobe. I, I don't agree with that. I, I get, I get that you don't need to do it to the point to where you start to water down or, or, or shine negative light on their careers. But part of that is what careers are about. It's about being able to discuss and debate who had the better career. That's part of the intrigue of sports. What are your thoughts on that? I think as long as you can remain healthy in your conversation and you know not get too illogical where you're sitting here basically insulting it an all-time great, I think there's still plenty of place for debate. I think you can um, talk uh, favorably about other players, even when you're arguing against them. Um, any self-respecting, objective basketball fan realizes that Kobe Bryant is not in the LeBron James and Michael Jordan tier, but I still highly esteem Kobe Bryant. He was the Michael Jordan of my childhood. He was an incredible player in his own right and one of the two to three greatest shooting guards of all time. You can't understate that. You cannot – you don't have to put him down to build someone else back up. Like we're talking about Kobe Bryant versus Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan is the best power forward of all time, and he may be the overall greater and more accomplished player than Kobe Bryant, but you don't have to tear down greatness to build up greatness to someone else. At the end of the day – Greatness recognizes greatness, and you can respect and appreciate both, even while you have friendly debates on whose greatness exceeded the others. That's the way I see it. Well, there's a reason why, and that's the thing about it, is that the guard position is always going to probably get the, the bigger recognition because that's where the ball starts. But there's a reason why when you go from the 8th to the 90s to the 2000s to the 2010s, the names that you first correlate with the NBA is mentioned is Magic, Michael, Kobe, and LeBron. It's because they played. They were where the ball um, – they were the content creators on the score court, either scoring, passing, whatever it may be. But that, to me, is why you, you can always compare it. You know, I feel like of those four that I mentioned, Magic, Michael, Kobe, and LeBron, you rank them Magic, Kobe, LeBron, Michael. Now, I will sit here and argue all day. I think LeBron James is the best basketball player out of that group, but he's never going to top that list with me growing up a Michael Jordan fan. I, I, I'm a die, diehard Michael Jordan fan, but I can sit here and have a conversation about this all day long and not disrespect any of them. So that's where I'm getting at. I think that it's fine that you want to respect the legacy of these players, 
but you can also still enjoy a conversation without it turning, you know, into something negative. Um, Nathan, one last thing that was kind of talked about that, that we saw, you know, people have been throwing around ideas about how to fill in the void of sports not being there. We've seen, you know, we would, obviously the NBA's had some original ideas, 2K tournaments, you know, things such as that. We've seen Madden simulations. Baseball has been talking about the home run derby. But now we're getting we're getting pretty fun. We're getting we're getting a connection that, you know, for us regular guys, no offense, Nathan, but just a regular thing that any of us can do in our backyard, a potential horse competition. Uh, the NBA is thrown around in which, you know, players will basically play horse by mimicking shots from their own respective, you know, black tops and, and homemade courts. But that leads me to want to ask this on a couple of different levels. What current Grizzly would you want to be your horse representative for Memphis? And what past Grizzly would you want to be your representative in a horse competition I'll tell you the past Grizzlies absolutely don't want anywhere near it, and that's Tony Allen. (laughs) That man, if I were playing horse against Tony Allen, I'd be shooting layups. (laughs) But uh, for current player, it's easy. It's Dylan Brooks. Um, There's definitely no player on the team that has hit any more difficult off-balance shots off the wrong foot than he has this year. If I need you need bad shots to win in horse. And Dylan Brooks brings some bad shots for better or for worse. Dylan's an easy choice. As far as a pass grizzly, now you're making me have to think a little bit on that one. Does Gilbert Arenas count? No, Nathan. Gilbert Arenas does not count. He but had a fun. very good half season in Memphis. Wow. Okay, go ahead, Nathan. <laughs> okay. Um Okay, I'm about to really get on some people with this one. Mario Chalmers, because we all know from experience when it comes time to hit a big shot, Mario Chalmers can do it. I think that if I'm – I think I'm going to stay, you know, pretty vanilla here, but, but but pretty on point. I think if I had to choose a pass Grizzly, it would be Mike Miller. That man could hit a jump shot. And, 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 and his and his regime or his regiment of what he went through to be able to hit those shots was unbelievable. A current Grizzly, I would pick John Morant, and it's not just because of his name. I think that John Morant would be a wild card dark horse in any horse tournament, not because of his ability to make jump shots. It's because of the way that he can contort his body close to the rim. I find it very hard for you to name me more than five players in the NBA who would be able to come up with as much content with as much creativity on layups and things such as that as he would. I get it basically would turn into a dunk contest, but that the way that that guy can sit there and contort his body in air to make a shot is unbelievable. And I would find it very hard for a lot of NBA players to repeat, you know, what he could do. I get you could sit there and take him behind the three-point line and probably beat him, but I think he could be just as effective close to the rim against some of these jump shooters. Uh, Honestly, I was doing some thinking about him and the type of ways that he floats, contorts, and hangs in midair. I really can't find another cop for it outside of Dr. J and Michael Jordan. Um, That doesn't mean he can finish at the level those guys can because he certainly can't yet. 
but the type of way that he contorts his bodies and seems to hang in midair at times. A great example, he gets stonewalled by three defenders in the paint as the shot clock ticks down against the Denver Nuggets earlier this year and ends up hanging for a reverse layup. I didn't even see the space that he could even get it off. I assumed Jokic was just going to put a hand up and block it and somehow contorts his way through traffic to throw it off the reverse layup and bank it in as the shot clock expires. That was something that I had never really even seen before. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Ja is necessarily the most athletic point guard that I've seen in my lifetime. i still got to give the edge to Derrick Rose and Russell Westbrook over him in that way. But just the way to be able to get up and stay up, those are the two guys that come to my mind when I watch him play. Agreed. I mean, they, when you look at the steal shots from the uh, the game winner that he made in Charlotte, you know, kind of as you know the, the the second iconic moment moment after the block on Kyrie Irving. Yeah, I, there's no way he should have made it. You know, I, but I think that you bring up a good point. You know, people mention Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook. I get um, uh, um, the De'Aaron Fox comparisons. But I think there there's some good comparisons between Derrick Rose and John Moran, both with the susceptible, susceptible outside shot that they can make up for with their ability to finish. Rose more with pure athleticism and speed. John with his with his body control and just his mind and work, being able to create space where you don't think there's there. Obviously, I think Jaw's the better passer. Rose probably the better pure scorer. But I do think that there are some comparisons there between Jaw and Rose. I don't know if Jaw is going to reach the level Rose did so quickly, but I do think that they're, in terms of their impact and their effectiveness on the game, I can certainly see some comparisons there. You know, as Jaw played more and more each month, he did remind me a little bit of Derrick Rose when you really look at, you know, Rose's early days pre-injury. A more, a more cerebral Derrick Rose, I think, would be the good way to put it. Like, Derrick Rose, ne- even at his peak, never had the game itself on a string the way that Ja does. Even as Ja is not obviously not at the level of a score that Rose was at his peak. But the hilarious thing about Ja is that when he goes up to score in midair and he goes into his levels of contortion and agility, um, the way that taller players who become big men at any level of basketball are taught to defend in the post, and there was no one ever better at it than Marcus Saul, is to simply put your hands up. You're bigger, yeah. you're taller, put your hands up. Don't put your hands down and certainly don't lean into the driver because you're just going to get called for a foul. It's something that Jaron Jackson has been very susceptible to in his two years in the NBA. But what makes John ja Morant so fascinatingly difficult to defend once he gets down into the paint is that you could be a seven foot center and do everything that you're supposed to do you can jump straight in the air and put your hand straight up the problem is is that you got to come down at some point and Josh stays in the air while you come down <laughs> so your effectiveness is just trying to be a stone wall and there's no better example than that last play against the Charlotte Hornets when he basically dives into three people and yet he's still able to extend past them and get the ball up over them it's <laughs> i could literally just watch a highlight clip of him jumping into people maybe not even making the shot but just the way he even gets it off in the first place and another good example wasn't even a jump shot it was against the cleveland cavaliers at home i think two months ago jumps up into the air and kevin love is waiting for him and he contorts 
180 degrees and slings a behind-the-back pass to Jaron. And Jaron, it would have been the assist of the decade, and Jaron just wasn't ready for it at all, so there was no assist to be had. But that type of stuff is what makes him so thrilling and compelling to watch. And, you know, we're going to basically revert back to the first of the show talking about the greatest Grizzly. You know, at the end of the day, does John Morant have the ability to become the greatest Grizzly one day? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, as Grizzlies fans, you don't you want Zach Randolph's time to be limited as the greatest Grizzly. You know, hopefully seven or eight years down the road, we're talking jaw as the greatest Grizzly. But that's the thing to remember about all this, is that when we're in the midst of of this new normal, these trying times, you know, something that I don't care if you're 17 or 70, you've likely never experienced before. Each day that passes, we're getting closer to not where things are going to be the way that they once were. I think it's going to be a while before that's the case. But eventually we will get sports back, even if it's not like it, if it takes time for it to get on the same level that it once was, we will get sports back and we're going to have a higher appreciation of sports once we get them back. For Grizzlies fans, the wonderful thing about that is, is that we're not looking at the long rebuild that we thought it was going to be a year ago. We're looking at a very bright future, one of the brightest in the NBA. And since we're going to have a higher appreciation of it when it gets back, that's going to make the talent of John Rant, Brandon Clark, Jaron Jackson Jr., and the rest of the roster, it's going to make it even more enjoyable to watch. So, you know, definitely am looking forward, you know, to getting some semblance of the NBA back whenever that may be. Nathan, do you have anything to wrap us up with? And if you don't mind, you know, just tell them folks where they can find you and any upcoming content you may have coming out. I don't really have anything to add. Um, I concur with everything. Basketball and life itself will soon return to normalcy, and we can look toward in, with anticipation to when that will happen. You can find me on Twitter at NathanChester24, and you can find all my Grizzlies-related content at grizzlybearblues.com. Look for a column this week about the top five players that I did not like. Excuse me, five young players that I did not like during the 2019-2020 NBA season. Last week, my column is about the top 10 player, young players that I did like this year. So get ready for the negative Nate side of me to come out. Hey, Nathan, the only issue that I had with your list earlier this week, I didn't make it. I don't think you respect my game enough. <laughs> oh, I don't respect your game enough. Yes, exactly. I don't are think you that you respect a young player. Game. Are you under 25, Sean? <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that will wrap up this edition of the PNB Podcast. Can't thank Nathan Chester enough uh, for the opportunity to, to, to talk with him and catch up with him. You, Nathan, you know you've always got um, an open door to please come right back whenever you know you would like. But for my name's Sean Cohen. For Nathan Chester, Justin Lewis will be back with us soon. Thank you so much for joining us for another edition of the 3 d Podcast. We'll catch back up with you next week. Stay safe and have a wonderful week. Go Grizzlies. Sure.